Hello and welcome to Counterpressed on the Ringer and Spotify. It's day four of the Women's World Cup and I'm joined by Jesse Parker Humphreys coming in live from Brisbane, Becky Taylor-Gill in London and dialing in from Wellington, New Zealand, making her Counterpressed debut, Swedish football journalist Amanda Zaza. Amanda, firstly, thank you so much for joining us because I know it's really late and we appreciate you staying up till God knows how late to uh, to join us today. So just firstly, set us the scene, just how late it is and what are the vibes in Wellington right now? It's uh, about 12.15 a.m., so it's late at night and I'm jet lagged. So it sucks and it's wet and windy. <laughs> wow, what a, what a great trip you seem to be having. Um, I want to talk about the weather later, actually, because it's, it's made quite a big impact on some of these games in New Zealand. But have you seen a good amount of Swedish fans out there? Is there a good Swedish press pack as well? Or like, how has this tournament compared to previous ones you've been to covering Sweden? I mean, there's quite a few of us from the press. But there were way more at the Euros in England. But still a fair amount has managed to make its way down under. And fans-wise, I saw some at my hotel. But other than that, I don't think there's that many. I think they said something about around 50 of them coming from Sweden, which is not that much. Wow, yeah, that seems really small. I know, I know. obviously, the Euros was it was like easy for them to travel to, but they had a really good amount of fans in, in England last summer and they had their like the soft hooligans crew that I love with their banners and stuff. So I know it's expensive, but why do you think it's not been that many people travel over? Well, you have quite good summers in Sweden. <laughs> so you'd, you'd, you'd want to stay stay over there. Um, as well as it being super expensive and we get cold winters and you come here and you get the the rain the wet and like the wet windy weather thing that you don't want at all so I don't know if people are thinking about that and possibly that and the money it's really really expensive yeah I mean to be honest a Swedish summer sounds beautiful so I'm not surprised they're not missing out Jesse big update from you because your bag has arrived. Huge news. I feel like I didn't realise how much I disliked having no belongings until they arrived. Um, it's beautiful. Put my books on my bookshelf. Got to put new clothes on. Could have a shower because I had shower things. Wow. Life-changing, really. Jesse, can we have a what you bought at Uniqlo when you didn't have any bags haul? So I actually got some really nice tracksuit bottoms from Uniqlo, which I'm wearing right now, even though wow. I have my other clothes here. Um, <laughs> they're that good. Got, you didn't want to put your, your own clothes on. I got some nice, crisp white T-shirts because I was like, you can never really have too many of them. So that felt like a good investment. The then Uniqlo ones to, are very good mm. as well. Can recommend. Then I went to H&M, Handley in Brisbane, right next to Uniqlo, and got some pants and socks. So that was basically all I bought. I also had to go and buy tea because I'd packed tea bags. Nightmare. Not as good as the tea bags I packed. <laughs> Sainsbury's own brand, my favourite actually. Um, but now I've got my tea bags back as well. I had to have twinings. I just it takes a long time to stew, you know? It's quite weak. I don't have that patience. Especially after a twenty seven hour journey where it's you've lost your bag, you need that tea to be brewed ASAP. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I didn't have my AeroPress either. So I finally had a cup of coffee at the Airbnb today. So that was nice as well. 
I can't believe you packed your AeroPress. That is sensational. That's really like well prepared. Um, Amanda, did you pack any home comforts? What would be your like go-to Swedish home comforts that you would bring with you? Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not that fun, honestly. I just got a shoehorn, <laughs> like a miniature one that helps you, like when you put your shoes on. I don't know why, but Amanda, you sent me this insane clothes haul you bought before you went oh. to New Zealand, though. Didn't you buy like a million clothes? Yeah, I think I splurged a lot on Uniqlo as well. I think Can't go I wrong. spent like Uniqlo get in touch for the sponsorship deal. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. If only. I think it was like seven hundred euros or something. Wow. Well, no wonder all you had left in your budget was room for a tiny shoehorn <laughs> because you spent all your money on Has clothes. Has the shoehorn been handy so far? Yeah, yeah. I use it every single day, multiple times. Like whenever <laughs> I put my shoes on, I just use it. But I actually <laughs> didn't buy it. I stole it. Taking her shoes on and off. Being like, watch <laughs> this, guys. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that we, I've thought about what I should be packing when I go to Australia. And I might, I might even pack a shoehorn now because I feel like it could change my life. Um, we have a ton of games to get through on today's show because obviously there was yet more football. It's been so hectic. But thank God, fewer penalties because I was getting stressed out by all the VAR nonsense. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about Sweden, South Africa, in Wellington, France, Jamaica in Sydney and Netherlands, Portugal in Dunedin. So let's get into it after this. Amanda, we've got to come to you first because you were at the game. We touched on the weather. It looked horrendous. And I know a lot of the games in New Zealand have been cold, but this one was really wet. I mean, first of all, Sweden get the job done. That's what matters from a Swedish perspective. But it was pretty tense and nervy. What was your kind of like overall initial thoughts and feelings around the game? I think it's changed a lot over the course of 90 minutes, to be fair. But I think after the first goal, when South Africa scored, I was like, we're going home in the group stage. (laughs) It's over. I'm quite dramatic as a person, too. So I was like, oh, it's over. We're going home. It's done. I get to see my mom again. But then Rolfa scored, and I was like, okay, good. I'm happy for her. And then number two came. Amanda Satu is really good in in the air and on corners and set pieces. And she's going to Arsenal, too, so they might need her. But, yeah, that's basically what I was thinking, that, okay, we they get the job done. It's not pretty. There's a lot of feelings. And it's the first game of the World Cup for them, so... I understand if there's a lot of nerves. Yeah, I mean, what was the expectation like going into this tournament? Because there's been so many injuries to this team, even just a few days before the opening game. And I think overall, like expectations have shifted from previous tournaments where, you know, the the kind of target kept getting higher. But I feel like there's been a natural adjustment here where people aren't really expecting Sweden to do much. So, like, how does this performance measure up to those slightly low expectations? I don't think the expectations were, were low at all. I think from a Swedish perspective, you expected them to basically just demolish South Africa, which didn't happen. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they haven't played together that much. And then as well, you touched on the injuries. We have Fridolina Rolfo with the knee injury, Karlin Sieger, who hasn't played a game in a while, and 
Amanda Elisette was injured as well. So it's been a, it's been a rough couple of weeks or months leading up to this tournament for them. Jesse, I, I felt like watching this game, and I think part of that was the weather as well, but it, it got very stodgy and it felt like we were seeing some of that Sweden of old, which is let's try and use these set pieces as a way to win the game because we're struggling with our build-up play. We're struggling to be fluid, which is, you know, the, the the Sweden that we saw maybe since the Olympic Games was a much more free attacking system that had versatility to it and didn't rely on set pieces. But it felt like today was a bit of a regression to like, let's just see how we get the job done and do it in a typical Swedish way. Yeah, I think there was a couple of things about the way Sweden played. The thing that I found bizarre is I actually didn't think their build-up play was that bad. It's just that they only did it on one side of the pitch. They just solely built up on the right-hand side. And I don't know how much this has to do with Aslani and her role in the system, but like I thought Philippa Angodar had a really good game. The ball she was putting through, like these lovely vertical balls through to Johanna Ritten-Kanarid. But it was so easy for South Africa just to put all their players in that area because Sweden seemed to have no real interest in switching the ball. And actually, when they did switch the ball or try to, or Canada gets that crossing across the penalty area. That's where their equaliser comes from. Um, I also think South Africa did really well in terms of anticipating what Shadina Blackstenius was going to do. There was a lot of times their centre-backs were stepping in front of her, stopping her from getting onto the ball, um, which I think limited her ability to sort of run in behind and for, for Sweden's stretch play in that way. And then the set-pieces thing, I'm kind of like, when you've got a player like Jonna Anderson and she's going to put in balls like that, like the corners she was putting into the box was so good. I'm like... Well, why wouldn't you? Like they, they had that pressure. They had it on the right-hand side. And, you know, when you you see, you know, the physical dominance, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But, you know, Sweden are a very physical, tall team. And I can see why you would you would go for that. And I thought, yeah, I thought some of Anderson's corners were were fantastic. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't really understand. You know, Fridley and Rolfo just felt totally absent from the game. And if you'd asked me before, like, who's the player that's going to change this for Sweden? It'd have been her. And what was strange about it as well was the way Sweden were building up was they were basically pushing Jonna Anderson really high on that left-hand side. So it was almost like they were in a back three, right, with Elishter, Eriksson and, and Natalie Bjorn. And it's not like Eriksson is bad on the ball. In fact, I'd say that's probably one of her main strengths. But it just I just don't understand why they didn't use that side of the pitch at all. Um, but I thought Kanarid and Angledar looked really good together. And that's why I wonder whether it's Aslani. I wondered whether if they'd started with a Hannah Benison in more like a, a left-sided eight role rather than having Aslani as his 10, whether that would have sort of opened up the play for them more. Amanda, what, what did you make of, of some of those bigger names, sort of disjointed performance, especially Rolfo? Like we mentioned her knee injury, but why do you think it was so hard for some of these players to like really get hold on the game? First of all, like I think South Africa really, really had their plan going on. Like they, they knew what they were going to do and what type of job they wanted to get done. I think that's number one. Number two is I actually did ask Fridolina about it after in the mixed zone, and I asked her. I felt like you weren't too, you weren't participating as much. How come? And she did explain that when it works with us shooting balls towards the right hand side. And Johanna Ritten-Connery is doing it so good and sending in the balls, then I won't get as many balls, is what she said. And we will probably keep forcing forcing South Africa to go on the right-hand side instead of going to the left. And then, with, for example, I think Blaxinius was totally invisible. But I don't know why or how they did not manage to get her those through balls. She, For me, it seemed like she wasn't hungry enough. She didn't ask for the ball enough. She wasn't 
asking for it. And I think that's that's like the biggest the biggest issue, I think. We know that set pieces can be really efficient for them, but do you think they're lacking a plan B when they can't get Blackstenius in the game or Rolfo is not getting in the game either? Like, do you think they need some other options? When you look at the players that came in, it's it's quality players with Rebecca Blomqvist, who's, I think, probably my favorite striker for Sweden if I had to put in put in a striker. Um, and then you have Olivia Skog, who's uh, incredible in the league in Sweden. Peter, the coach, talks a lot about um, a starting 11 and an 11 to have at the end, right? And I think what he was doing this game, I didn't really understand because the players that he put in, they didn't shine either, and he needed to force to get that goal, which I don't know if it makes sense, but it's something that I think they need to work on. I mean, it's giving England Haiti, but you know, I think that's the general feeling of this of this tournament. I want to come on to that um, a, a bit later on, but also, Amanda, what's the reaction been like in Sweden? Obviously, like you're part of that Swedish press group, but like, how has it been received back home? That kind of performance were people doing what English press were doing yesterday, which is getting a little bit freaked out, or are they quite happy that they went and did it? I think a lot of people were expecting more. You, you would expect that with this group, right? You'd expect Sweden to beat South Africa with by a milestone, and the same with Italy and Argentina. And I even sent a message to a friend of mine yesterday, and I said, I hope we don't have to wait until the 89th minute like Denmark. And here we are doing the exact same thing. Football man. It's cruel. What South Africa's performance as well showed us is yet again that a lot of the traditional kind of smaller nations at this World Cup, who some of them have never won a game, never even got a point in the tournament, are really holding their own against really established, more developed, much wealthier nations. And South Africa did that again in this game. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really gutting for them to have not come away from that game with anything. Um they really held their own in really tough conditions as well, I think. Um, and yeah, the goal was scrappy. It was messy, but um, they all count. And so I think they will be really disappointed. I was also very gutted for the player that scored the goal. Because it was so messy, she ended up tangled in the back of the net and couldn't really celebrate that moment with her teammates. Um, so that's also gutting. So just generally quite a sad day for South Africa because I do think that they probably deserved more from the game. Jesse, as well, this group, though, even though South Africa come away with nothing, this group is still pretty wide open, given how Sweden you know, don't look like they're feeling too confident or really in their rhythm yet. We haven't seen Italy and Argentina play. They're still to play. But it does feel like there still could be potentially a fairy tale on the cards. Like if South Africa could get a result against Argentina and Italy... They could get out this group. Do you think they proved enough with their performance today that they could make that happen? Potentially. Um, I do think this group feels very open, even though maybe on the face of it, you just think, oh, Sweden and Italy will go through. I actually think maybe who might have taken the most from it is Argentina, because I feel like they're kind of the form team in this group. And I think maybe seeing Sweden's performance will make them feel better about their chances. Um, I think the thing that you worry about for some of, not worry about, but sometimes I wonder if the smaller teams, and we've seen lots of smaller teams, but in big performances, but 
they almost put everything into that sort of first game. And we've had a lot of sort of Giants versus Minnows in the first sort of round of group stage games. And I guess maybe that maybe it just feels more like that because of the, the tournament's expanded, so the gap feels bigger. But I think it will be interesting to see how well some of these teams do when they maybe play against teams who are more at their level. Because I do wonder if you sort of get that freeing moment as the underdog where you're like, okay, we've got a game plan, but ultimately there's no pressure on us. No one's expecting us to do anything. And then suddenly if you put in a good performance or if you you know pick up a point, like in Jamaica's case, then it's like, well, gosh, we've got something to build on now. And actually then that pressure ramps up. And sometimes I wonder if that's when those those teams who are who are more the underdogs than minnows maybe don't have the same psychological capacity to deal with that as some of the bigger teams. So I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, like who comes out where. But yeah, I think the the biggest thing that I think South Africa can take from this is they felt so precise in how they attacked. Um, and again, I know this is again we'll come on to, but like one of the frustrations I thought with Portugal was that even when they had chances, they just felt so rushed or scrappy or imprecise whereas I think what really advantaged South Africa in this game was that they were putting Sweden under pressure because every time they went forward it was like they were making inroads and they were in dangerous areas they weren't just sort of losing the ball um, and obviously that's kind of then also what leads to the goal in terms of that precision so yeah it'll be interesting to see it feels like a very open group yeah and, and like you say all these sort of minnow nations having to commit so much physically and mentally to these really intense opening games against really experienced sides like to continue that and carry that momentum especially when you don't get a result will be really draining with much smaller squads as well some some of which are already really depleted because they've picked up injuries or had issues around that and um, let's talk about the other big Giants versus Minnows matchup. Jamaica, France, next. So a massive point for Jamaica, their first ever point at a World Cup, which is huge. We've already had quite a few firsts in this tournament, but that just kind of adds to it. And um, I felt like, Jesse, the whole timeline was willing Jamaica on in this game. We did have a, a little bit of drama towards the end, which we'll talk about with Bunny Shaw getting sent off. But it felt like the people's World Cup point for me. Yeah, I think lots of people understandably rooting for Jamaica I think from a UK perspective as well there's obviously a lot of interest there whether it's you know seeing players like Drew Spence or Becky Spencer get the opportunity to play for them at the World Cup or you know equally Bunny Shaw has obviously been such an important figure in the WSL in recent seasons I think all of that makes people feel very excited for for a Jamaican team who just have a lot of fun vibes they just seem like a really nice group of girls um and I just think everyone's getting behind the underdog, right? That's part of the fun of the World Cups. And I think seeing these real mismatched games makes, and especially as it goes on and we're seeing people, those teams get points. It's, it makes everyone start believing, well, you know, you don't go into any game thinking the results are given. Um, but yeah, I thought Jamaica were really impressive. I think France were probably a little bit unlucky. I think they they probably did enough, but they were also quite disjointed and I think you could definitely tell that you know Renard is still a new manager there he's still sort of adjusting to his team that they've had to constantly reshuffle through through injuries but yeah an amazing point for for Jamaica and I guess the only sort of sour note is is missing Bunny Shaw especially with Panama being the, the next game coming up I'm torn on that one because on the one hand I'm like maybe it'd be better if they were just playing Brazil and you just be like take the L but then also on the other hand I'm like well maybe they can beat Panama without Bunny 
Um, but yeah, obviously frustrating for her. I think especially because I think if she'd got it because she was like hauling back Diani, who was running through on goal, you'd take it. But, you know, just kind of clipping Wendy Renard and sort of her rolling and rolling around is less, is suboptimal. Yeah, it was a it was really silly from Bonnie Shaw, and I I get it in many ways that when the officiating women's football is so consistent, there'd be many games where she would have got away with both of those challenges and not been booked. But when you are on a yellow card, you do have to just play smarter. You just have to do that. And I think she was naive to continue to kind of be as rash as she did with that. Um, Amanda, though. Obviously, before Bunny got sent off, uh, she especially in the first half, obviously Jamaica kind of run out of gas and, and were clinging on in the second half. But in the first half, Bunny Shaw was so important, really kind of keeping Jamaica in the game and, and, and carrying the ball and getting them up the pitch and winning fouls. The issue being that she did all that hard graft and then she would get to like be on the halfway line or get nearly to the edge of the box. And there would just be no help around her because she's kind of like this, you know, almost like a Trojan horse, the way I see it, kind of trying to kind of get into opposition teams. But then she's left so isolated. How do you think Jamaica, like, firstly cope without her because she is so important? But actually, could it be beneficial if they have to work out how to play without her? It's it's definitely an interesting question, right? Because she's so much better than everybody else on that team. So for them to keep up with her, it's quite hard. Because I'm Swedish, I'm going to compare it to, to Zlatan Ibrahimovic when he played with the national team, right? He's so much better than everyone else, and they always tried to get him the ball. But when he wasn't playing, they played more as a collective of a team. And I think Jamaica might be might be doing that if Bunny can't play. Yeah, and I actually think what's interesting is that I feel like France were really naive to that, that they were sort of running around like headless chickens. I think this speaks to how lacking in structure they were. But there was no way they needed to go and put six players around the ball for Bunny. Like, you just needed to get her off, like, running in the wrong direction because we saw a couple of times that, okay, Jamaica had some box threat, like Drew Drew Spence was sort of trying to get into those areas. But it's obviously... Not like they've got all of these midfielders, you know, really going for it into the box. So, if you know, Bunny can do anything. And it just felt like every time they put all these players around Bunny, then when eventually they did turn the ball over, which they would, um, they couldn't do anything with it because all their players were were there next to Bunny. So you can't then build and like counterattack. And I just thought that was a really strange thing for them to do that just, you know, it just felt like, they were all panicking. And like, I love that for Bunny. <laughs> like, you know, justified um, justified concern. Like, it speaks to how good she is. But I just feel like if I was their manager, I'd have been like, yo, leave it to Wendy. Like, she's got this. <laughs> or just two. Like, give put two, two of them on Bunny. Like, you don't need six. Jesse, some interesting tactical decisions were made by her, Renard, though. The first time we got to see the world's sexiest man at the FIFA World Cup. So great <laughs> to finally see him make his debut. <laughs> Because I Ken's- thought I was the world's sexiest man at the World Cup. <laughs> oh no, I'm so sorry to let you know that her for an hour, I just won that award on your behalf. Um, wow. We'll have a vote at the end of the tournament. <laughs> who's the most famous Becky and who's the world's sexiest man? Jesse, if you vote for me, I'll vote for you. <laughs> okay. 
No Kenzadali in this one, which I think a lot of people were surprised about because she is so important in the way that France can play and when she can kind of drift in and out of those important spaces and she's so good in, in their build-up play. So no Kenzadali and also no Eve Perisset and that seemed like a real issue. Jesse, do you kind of understand or not understand what Herve Renard was trying to do there? I think he clearly just prefers Lacroix, which... What's kind of interesting around that is Lacroix, I believe, normally plays as a centre-back and is kind of being used in, in this right-back role. But obviously with Elisa Almeida being unavailable, they could have used Lacroix at centre-back and still had Deep Perisset in the team. And instead they brought in Estelle Cascarino. And she was kind of fine, but like she's literally not played at all. Um, she went on this loan to United, right? And no one saw her, like everyone who goes to United who's not in the starting eleven. Mark Skinner just locks them in a cupboard for six months. Um, and I felt like early on in the game, I, I think as time went on and, and Jamaica tied, it didn't matter as much and France did create opportunities, but it just felt like, especially in that first 20 minutes or so, France were really struggling to play out from the back. And I was surprised because I just think Parasite had a really good season. I think she's a calm player. She can go forward as well as back. I feel like she offers a lot of, of different I think I can see why, you know, like Lacroix maybe offers different things, but I just think what's weird is I just kind of think Paris is better. Um, but Renard obviously thinks differently and that that's kind of his prerogative. But I felt like you could sort of see that France's build-up wasn't really there. And maybe that was like because De Almeida was missing. She's normally quite good on the ball. Um, but there's obviously been a lot of things that have had to shift around for France. Basha's absence as well. And again, I, I wasn't really sure this like sort of Le Sommer Diani front two was quite working. I just think Renard hasn't figured out what his best team looks like. And it's a tough job because not only has he only come in this year, he's also then reintegrating a load of players who haven't been part of the France national team for a very long time, like Le Sommer. He's then had to lose loads of players who he, he thought he might have, you know, no Amandine Henri. Um, now missing Basha de Almeida like just before the, the first game so obviously you've got to kind of have that that rejig and you know we've seen that France aren't the only team at this tournament who don't necessarily know their best starting 11 but I feel like this one just just wasn't something that worked but look on another day as well Diani's header that comes off the the crossbar and then the post that goes in and, and then you're like well it, it totally it does totally change the game like was France's performance that much worse than say England's against Haiti. I don't really think so. I think both teams would were, were, you know, sort of equally disjointed, but that's that's the way these things go. You know, at tournaments, these these early results can can really make or break you. And that's kind of why, like, I don't I'm not trying to just talk about England, but like my reaction to that was you just take three points and you go, because you know, you're not always that lucky. And and sometimes you need that that bit of luck in international tournaments. Maybe it won't matter for France as well, you know, like I was um talking about, you know, teams that grow into tournaments. And obviously, Erdogan was on the opposite end of that at the World Cup. Saudi Arabia won that first game against Argentina and they went on to win the whole thing. So probably him more than anyone will know that it doesn't have to matter. Uh, but it definitely puts them in a trickier position than, than they were, especially with Brazil in that group. Yeah, Amanda, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on that um, element that Jesse mentioned of the fact that a lot of these these matchups between some of the bigger teams and the smaller teams. And we're seeing some shock results with New Zealand beating Norway and some of these other countries pushing it to the limit. But all, what, what, what we're also seeing is these teams who 
don't look like they're really ready, don't look like they do know their best 11, don't look like the players really understand their roles. France certainly slot into that. England certainly slot into that. And with your experience watching Sweden earlier today, they definitely slot into that. So, I mean, looking at it from a France perspective, though, what do you think they need to do moving forward to actually try and establish themselves in this tournament and like make sure they get out of the group as well? Because a point um, on the face of it in this game is really not what they would have wanted. Right. It's... It's it's a complicated question, I think, because looking at the the star players that are actually out of the tournament with France, they're gonna have to find players that can step step into that position and actually take that responsibility. And I think when you don't have those, obviously there are players that are are leaders, but you don't have Katoto, you don't have, you know, some of your some of your natural leaders that you would want on the field that's obviously going to hurt the team quite a lot in the long run. And I think a lot of teams are seeing that with injuries and maybe not everyone stepping up and taking their responsibility. And I think this is where you need a coach that comes in and tells you that sets the game plan really specific. And it's like, this is what we're going to do. And we can't sway away from that at all. And France have no time to rest. Unlike Jamaica, who might look at that Panama game, even without Bonnie Shaw, and think we could do something, France go into the next game against Brazil, and that is not going to be easy whatsoever. A lot of people like the look of Brazil in this tournament. We're, we're yet to see them play, so it'll be interesting and how they kind of enter into this competition, especially if we're going to see more of the same uh, replicated on these kind of surprise performances. Panama... World Cup debutants, but it's almost like you just can't write anyone off here because there is a, a banana skin around the corner for everyone. Let's quickly touch on the other game that happened uh, today, which was Netherlands-Portugal. Absolutely not a classic whatsoever, I would say. Um, and two teams that looked a little bit rusty in many ways. I personally liked the look of Portugal coming to this tournament, but they didn't really do me any favours with their performance Um even their pretty solid defending in that uh, England warm-up game kind of evaded them a little bit with this. And we know that they struggled to defend from set pieces. It's what completely destroyed them at the Euros. Uh, and they looked really all over the place today. But uh, let's start with the Netherlands, Jesse. They're in a bit of a weird place. Um, and I want to talk about the the formation and the lineup because that is probably the most sort of like peculiar thing that, that the Netherlands are are uh, are dealing with right now. Um, we saw uh, Sharida Spitzer playing in this back three that Andres Jonkers always preferred a back three since he came in. Um, obviously, most people are used to seeing her in midfield. And yeah, the way that the Netherlands are trying to play is a little bit um, kind of, I don't know, free guitar, free jazz vibes. It all, it all just seems a little bit all over the place with this starting lineup. Do you see some pros in it or are you a bit like, what the hell is Andreas Jonker doing? I kind of think it's fun. Um, <laughs> like, I kind of think it's interesting and a bit different to that extent. Like, I enjoy that. I think what's weird is that, fine, play Sheridan Spitzer in your back three if that's what you want to do, even though you literally do have other centre-backs. Um, but you could bring someone to play in holding midfield 
someone who you worked very hard to persuade to play for your country in Damaris Egarola. And it just feels like without Damaris in that team, they lose a lot of the structure. And free jazz, I think, is quite a fun way of describing it because it's like they've got this midfield three of Daniela van der Dong, Jackie Grun and Jill Rod. And then they're like, guys, just go where you want. Which Just do what you, you want, probably, man. You can get away with it against Belgium. They just about got away with it against Portugal. But will you get away with it against the US? I'm not sure if that's going to work out for you. Um, and I was really surprised at how much control the Netherlands gave up as, as this game went on. I think this is, may- and maybe actually against a team like the US, we'll see the formation come to fruition more. Maybe the idea is it's meant to be this sort of like uber counter-attacking way of playing. You've got Esme Bruce and Victoria Pelova as your two wing backs and you're just going to get the ball, turn over the ball, and when everyone's out of possession, they're just going to go for it, and you're going to have this super-attacking front four of two wingers and then uh, Lika Martins and Lilith Berenstein, potentially. Because definitely as a game where you're going to have a lot more possession against an opponent who's fine rather than not very good like Belgium are, there was just no opportunity to, to keep control of the ball. And really, the Netherlands are very lucky that Portugal was so wasteful when they got the ball. I don't know if Portugal were just overwhelmed by the occasion. Obviously, there were there's kind of very emotional shots of, of lots of the players crying as they sang the national anthem, which I actually found like one of the most touching things I've seen at the, the tournament so far to see how much it meant, meant for them. But I did wonder if, you know, that level of emotion to then be able to switch it off to go into a game. It just felt like... Lots of things were rushed. Players who we'd normally expect to be a lot more precise on the ball couldn't string together the passes. That Even when they had the space, even when they had a lot of time on the ball, um, they couldn't really make the most of it, which was a shame. But yeah, the Netherlands, I'm going to be intrigued to see what this formation is like against the US because I've kind of now just talked myself into this like really fun version of it. So I'm going to be really disappointed if they're just rubbish. Um, but I'm, I won't write it off just yet. On the, on paper, there are some really good pieces of the Netherlands' puzzle. It feels like they're kind of all in a bit lopsided right now. But there are some really, really talented play, uh, players. Jesse mentioned something like Pelova, obviously DVD. We know what she can do, Jill Rod. There, there, there are the tools there for the Netherlands to go far in this competition. But they're not the only side that have, hasn't been clinical in this World Cup. So, you know, they're not the only ones that need to work on it. Maybe it's the season break. I don't know. I mean, I think some of the England players, Jesse, were mentioning yesterday that they think the, the the long break between the WSL ending, and like obviously that's the same for a lot of players in Europe, apart from maybe Sweden, really. But a lot of players finished their, their season quite a long time ago. Do you think part of it's that? I mean, in the end of Bissell, they should really be, you know, the, the Americans should really be the sharpest, but they miss a lot of chances against Vietnam as well. But why do you think people are just feeling a little bit rusty right now? Well, I think there's, to a certain extent, maybe part of it is that we're just not really seeing the world's best finishers at this tournament right now. And you mentioned the US, but Dave arguably had the most inform in the world, one of the most inform in the world's strikers uh, slash forwards played the best we've seen a strike slash ball play at the tournament so far in Sophia Smith. But when you kind of look at, you know, who who are the top five strikes in the world? There's no Katoto at this tournament. We haven't seen Sam Kerr play yet. 
there's no Viv Miedemar. Okay, she might not necessarily have been playing up front, but again, someone who I'd say is one of the best finishers in the world. Hegerberg is probably the only one who's like really up there who we've seen play, and she unfortunately plays for Norway. So what can she do? She's never going to get the ball. So I think that's a little bit of it. I think lots of the players we're seeing have these chances formed to them. I'm not necessarily players who you would think of as being super clinical anyway. Um, maybe Rousseau would be the other one who, who you'd be like, oh, a bit of a disappointment given the chances that did fall to her and, and given what's sort of expected with her. But equally, I don't think she had a very good season in that sense. So I... I also just think that's sometimes the way tournament football goes. Again, you know, when you look, think of the amount of chances a forward will get across a season, it's basically like the theory that underpins XG, that over time you'll sort of average them out. But when you're looking at these games in these very small sample sizes, those chances are going to feel like more outsized because also their importance is massively increased. You're basically playing in a cup fight, you know, potentially seven cup finals over four to five weeks. Um, so to that extent, every shot almost becomes worth more. And I feel like that, I think equally we could see it swing back the other way and we could be sat here in, in game week three being like, oh, everyone, you know, was really, really clinical. Um, and then I also think this relates to the fact that the gap, even though maybe we thought it would be really big because there were more teams in this tournament, actually is clearly not as big as it was even four years ago. But even that's like, I think, a little bit of a misinterpretation i think uh understanding of 2019 and the gap is heavily influenced by the americans being thailand 13-0 which was just a one-off game but basically ever since the 1991 world cup average goals scored of the tournament has just gone down 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 um and i think we'll see it go down again probably uh at this tournament which yeah just relates to the fact that i think it's not even necessarily that the well, I guess maybe this is the levels getting closer, but I think teams are just a lot more uh, better at defending, more tactically efficient. There's also more video available. Like you can watch these teams, whereas like 10 years ago, you would probably be like having to go, like, if you wanted to watch uh, your opponent in the World Cup play, you probably would have had to send someone to go and watch them because you're not, you know, now everyone's warm-up games you are able to watch all over the world. Um, so I think there are a lot of different factors. Um, I don't think it's quite as simple as just being like, everyone's tired but that's probably something too you know players get rusty and um I think Kate was it who said on one of our previews that she was like oh it always takes me like a couple of games um to get going and I guess that's why you kind of see people often having their best performances or the players that we really think of and remember standing out in World Cups uh, when the tournament finishes are the players who perform well sort of at that quarter semi-final final stage. Yeah, and it's also not even the gap in the scorelines, though. It's the the gap closing um, in the results with New Zealand getting their first ever win, Jamaica getting their first ever point. Like that, I think, is the best example. And like South Africa nearly, you know, nearly getting a win or a point against Sweden. Like that is probably the biggest example of that gap closing, even when the, the goal lines have been kind of getting or the, the, the goal um, differences have been getting kind of narrower and narrower. And as well, I think when you talk about kind of form it really makes the performances of Beth Mead and Alex Pop last summer really stand out of two players who were just like playing some of the football where like everything you touch turns to gold and those moments are quite rare even if you're out of season or in season and when you look at Sophia Smith like she's at that next level and I think that's when those players really stand out 
Um, we have run out of time for today's show, but thank you so much to Amanda for staying up until the depth of the night in New Zealand and making your counterpress debut. Uh, please go and get some sleep. Uh, and I hope Sweden put in a good performance next game just to heal your jet lag. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, and of course, we'll be back tomorrow, which is Monday, with three more games. We've got Italy, Argentina, Germany, Morocco, and Brazil, Panama. So we'll see you all then. <laughs>